Well, the Bible's full of promises from God. And those promises are, are given to us in different ways. Some of them, like the ones we've been looking at in, the, in recent weeks, are relegated to the arena of time. They are promises that are simply a matter of time or contingent upon just the passing of time. God said, this is what I'm going to do. And at the right time, as time progressed, at the time that He determined He would act, He does it. For example, we have in Genesis 3.15, this promise, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now this is actually directly a promise to Satan. We benefit from the fulfillment of this promise. This promise, we know, is not contingent upon anything that we have done. It's merely contingent upon what the Bible calls the fullness of the time. When God had determined that the time was full, the promise was fulfilled. And we know that it was fulfilled in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how this promise finds its greatest fulfillment. There are other promises that God gives us that are actually contingent upon the actions of men. For example, Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We have a promise here. There's a promise of rest. But you must come. There's a contingency. You must come to Jesus. If you will come, there's rest to be found in Him. If you will not come, there's no rest. Now or for eternity. And that's a promise. But it requires that you act upon the promise. We could say that the entire Bible is effectively a promise from God. It's all the revelation of God to men. We could, we could finish reading the entire Bible and close it and say... God's promise is that the God of this Bible, this book, will be this God to me. And He can make this promise to us because of these other promises, specifically that through the work of Christ, He would crush the, work, or crush the head of the serpent, destroy His work, that, that if we would come to God through Christ, we would have rest, and therefore in having this rest, we come to possess the God of the Bible as our very own God. Through the life and death of Jesus Christ as a voluntary, vicarious sacrifice, the sin in us which earned God's condemnation has already been met with perfect justice and we can be offered God on a platter. Here He is. God offers Himself. Here I am for the taking for all who will come. It's a promise because Christ has already done what we cannot do. And if you will come to Jesus Christ, you can have Him. Those are promises. Children, those are promises from God to you. If you will come to God through Christ, you can have Him. The entire God of the entire Bible, He says, you can have all of me if you'll just come through Jesus Christ. Now, what do we do with these kinds of promises? Those kind which are dependent upon some work of ours. They're contingent upon some action in us. What do we do with them? What we do the same thing we do with all of the other promises. We claim them. But these kind of promises, the way you claim them is not merely saying it out loud or say, I declare this promise or I'm claiming this promise over my, you know, my year 2022 or whatever. The way you claim these promises is by acting upon what God has said. You, you, you prove the promise. You put it to the test by doing what God has said to do. You, you, if you want to prove the promise, I will give you rest. If you want to prove that promise from Christ, what do you do? You come to Him. You just come. You say, well, I'm not really sure that I believe that promise will have you come. If you come, you prove the promise. That's how, that's how we claim these promises. We put them to the test by fulfilling our side of the offer. But the Bible is full of promises. And that's what we've been talking about for the past several weeks. The promises of God, specifically, that God has promised that all who've come under His saving power, who've, who've 
believed upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and who have been justified freely by His grace, every Christian, God promises every Christian, will live a righteous life. And that's a promise that we have from God. And we've looked at it from Jeremiah 31. Last week we looked at Ezekiel 37 and Ezekiel 36. And all of those were promises of that first kind. Those promises, nowhere in the text do, does God say, now if you'll do this, then I will do this. Those promises, God said, here's the covenant I'm going to make. Here's what I'm going to do. And he's, and he's done it. The final text that we're going to look at in this, in our consideration of the promises of God, is a New Testament text. It's written by the Apostle Paul. As we've already seen when we looked at 2 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul believed the promises of God and he stood upon the promises of God. He actually used the promises that we were looking at in Jeremiah 31 and others. The Apostle Paul used those promises as a validation of his own ministry. His thinking was like this. I'm a minister of the New Covenant. God has promised that in the New Covenant He'll put His Spirit within the hearts of His people. Do you have the Spirit of God written upon your heart? Therefore, my, my ministry is a valid ministry. He, he stood upon that to validate His own ministry. In Galatians 5, He turns the promises of God toward the saints in Galatia. And He's calling them and He, he calls us to make use of this promise Ourself. He's calling us to satisfy the contingency. This is a different kind of promise, although it's still a promise from God. Look at this verse again. Have you ever read this text as a promise? But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, first, a word about the form of this verse. It begins with this phrase, but I say. Now that's the Apostle Paul speaking. But, 2 Timothy 3.16, we know all Scripture is God-breathed. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul said that his words ought to be received as the very words of God. So while we read, but I say, while it is the Apostle Paul who speaks, it's God who speaks. God is speaking here. Notice the form that this word takes. Now I'm going to subtract some words and see if you can get, get in your mind how this verse is laid out. Walk and you will not gratify. Walk, and you will not gratify. The form of this verse is, do this, and you won't do this. That's the promise. Do this, and you won't do that. The promise, you won't do that, is contingent upon the command. Do this. Now this is not one of those promises that's necessarily relegated to time or or temporal future, it's one of contingency. We, we could say the form of this verse is anytime you perform action A, you will not perform action B. Anytime. Now or as long as you live. And action B, I think it's safe to say without much explanation yet, action B is clearly something that we want to avoid. We, we don't want to do we, 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 we like the promise. Now, how can Paul make a promise like this? Do this, and you won't do that. How can he, he do that? I think it's because of the promises that we've already seen. The promises in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel 36, and elsewhere. I think because Paul believed those promises, then he comes to the believers and he says, because that promise is true, I can say, do this, and you won't do that. In other words, this is a promise rooted in a promise. This promise is conditioned on our willingness to act upon the promises of God. Our obtaining one promise is dependent upon our acting upon another promise. Now, 
there's a five-letter word in the Scriptures, in theology, that we use to sort of summarize the idea of acting upon the promises of God. It's the word faith. That's what it means. If you, if you read Hebrews 11, what do those people do? They did what God said. They obeyed God. They, they faithfully trusted in God's Word. Acting upon the promises of God. Our obtaining one promise is here dependent upon our acting upon another promise. Now having said that, we can divide the verse up into two main parts. There's the command, walk by the Spirit. And then there's the promise. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now I said this promise is rooted in another promise of God, those promises we've already seen. The promises of the new covenant, the promises that a Christian will keep the Ten Commandments, the promises of regeneration, of the giving of the Holy Spirit. All of those promises, Paul now takes them and brings them into the realm of our sanctification. See, typically when we think of the new covenant promise of of the giving of the Spirit and, and regeneration, that's the start of our salvation It does have effects into our sanctification. Here we see that expressly. He's taking those promises and he's saying, since that is true, now that you're a Christian, continue to live according to those promises. Make make use of them or, or lay claim to them. Here Paul takes this promise and brings it into the realm of our sanctification by showing that the fruit of God's working in us is not automatic. Now, It's certain, but it's not mechanical. It's not just like a button you push, and it just begins to to do. God works, and here we find out we too must work. But we also know that because God works, we will work. It's certain, but it's not mechanical. It's not automatic. And so Paul's telling us what we have to do to see the promises of God fulfilled in us. So if we wanted to put everything together, again, I said all of this was, had, was originally intended to be one sermon. So if we, we put everything we've seen from Jeremiah 31 and, and Ezekiel 37 and 36, and now we come to this, God promises in many places that a Christian will keep the Ten Commandments. But that keeping requires great diligence and effort on our part. It's not mechanical. God promises that when we act on the promises of God, we will be able to walk according to His commandments. That's the idea. So that we begin with a command, walk by the Spirit. It it would literally read, although somewhat awkwardly, Spirit, walk. That's the idea. Walk by the Spirit. There's an imperative, walk, and then there's the means of walking. By the Spirit. This command addresses our duty, walk, and the means by which we are to fulfill our duty or carry out this duty. By the Spirit. So our duty is to walk. Paul commands us to walk. Again, he's giving us a command in order to lay hold of the promises of God. And the duty is to walk. Now we've seen this, right? What does it mean to walk? It's, it's your your walk as a noun would be your life. The, the, whole, the old word was your whole conversation of life. The, the entire description of your life. Here, it's a, a verb as a command. It is the way you conduct your life. When somebody says walk in this regard, what they're saying is conduct your life. Live your life. And we're reminded again that you are the one, the reader is the one who's doing the walking. You are to conduct your life. You manage your life. You carry yourself. You have been charged with the management and the administration of your own life. You have to do it. You have to decide every single day every hour on the hour, and moment by moment, how you are going to walk, how you're going to conduct your life, how you're going to think, how you're going to speak, how you're going to act. That's up to you. You have to do that. Now, now I know that that's probably the second thing that I've said this morning that just really irks the majority of Calvinists, right? If you will have Christ, you can have Him. And if you won't, 
You don't get him. That's one that really upsets people. But the other one is this. You have to conduct your own life. That's your responsibility. One of the beautiful things about the Christian life is that we are not victims of our circumstances or victims of some external force. We are the ones who've been given the power by the Holy Spirit to make determinations on how we will think, how we will speak, and how we will act. Now, some of us, you, we kind of want to go back to that, that robotic Calvinism that where God just sort of takes over and, and, and makes you do things. Because what this forces us into, it's actually good for us when we realize that we are the ones who have to decide moment by moment, day by day, how we're going to think, live, act, how we're going to carry out our lives. It's good for us, even though we don't like it, because this is what allows us to learn the chief lesson of life, which is that as we conduct our lives, as we walk in ourselves, we're powerless. God wants you to know that. He wants you to see that. And the more you're willing to acknowledge, I have to conduct my life, the more opportunity you're going to get to see, I'm powerless. I can't do it. I can't do it the way He's commanded me to do it, in myself. We're charged with the duty to walk, but we are never told to find the power of our walking in ourselves apart from God. We, we have to learn throughout our lives to rely upon God. Now in the Bible and in theological study, there's a five-letter word that's used to summarize the idea of relying upon God. It's called faith. Faith. By faith, we live according to the promises of God. By faith, we rely upon God as we live according to the promises of God. So we must walk. We're commanded. Walk. But we walk by the Spirit. Here he addresses the means by which you conduct yourself. This is how you are to do it, by the Spirit. That is to say, the Holy Spirit is the means by which a Christian is to conduct himself or herself in this life. The Holy Spirit is the means. How do we... You're to walk, okay? I'm going to walk, okay? How do we do it? By the Spirit, okay? What does that mean? That may still feel a little vague. I know we've all heard this thousands of times in our, in our lives. Walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. And if you're like me, you, you want somebody to say, okay, I'm ready. But how, what does that really look like? How do I actually do that? If, if, if Paul had said, go to the store, buy a car, or buy the car by means of a car, you'd say, oh, I get that. What he's saying is I have to travel there, and the car is what I'm going to get in to get me there. I understand that. Travel by means of a car. If Paul had said, assemble the desk by means of the instruction, instructions, instruction manual, well, I know what he means. He's not saying use the instruction manual as a screwdriver. He's saying read the instruction manual and let that tell me how to do it. Like I understand those kinds of phrases. But here we have a walk, conduct your life by the Spirit, and we, we tend to sort of scratch our heads about what that means. The Spirit is a person. If you told me to, to go to Walmart by means of a person... That's a little more confusing. Now, I could probably maybe deduce ride with the person or whatever, but what does he mean when he says walk by the Spirit? How, how might we open that up? Well, I think we get a hint at what he's saying down in verse 25 where he summarizes this teaching. In verse 25 of this chapter, he says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. I think right there he's summarizing walk by the Spirit. We could, we could reword it this way. Paul says, if we have our living by the Spirit, if, if we've been made spiritually alive through regeneration, if we are being sustained spiritually by the Holy Spirit through His indwelling, that is, if we are true Christians, if we live by the Spirit or have our living by the Spirit... Then, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us conform to Him. Let us walk the way 
he walks. To keep in step with somebody, you kind of think of the, the wheels on a, a train that's, that's got the, the big long arm that connects them together. And they're going, they're making the same movement because they're connected together. You know the picture? I don't know the, I don't know the terminology. That, that, that thing that moves the wheels of a train, one of them has power behind it and it's, it's moving all of the other ones. It's in step with itself, I guess you could say. That's the picture to, of, of keeping in step with the Spirit. So what Paul's saying is, if, if it is by the Spirit that we have life as a source, then let us conduct ourselves according to the Spirit as a, a script. I'm using the word script because it's just another S. Source and script. A, a model, like, like, like an instruction, a guide, if you will. And these are essentially the two ways in which the Holy Spirit is the means by which we conduct ourselves. He's the source and He's the script. He's the power and He's the director or directions. I don't like to use directions. He's a person. To walk by the Spirit as a source is to have the Holy Spirit as the power behind your living. He gives life to your living. He's the life source. Now this is important to remember when we eventually get to the how of gospel obedience. How do you do it? Well, He's the power, therefore you're not the power. You cannot obey in your own strength and power. If you're doing it in your own power, you're not walking by the Spirit. And if you can do it in your own power, then you don't need the Holy Spirit. He has to be the life source. He has to be the power. You do not have it in yourself, nor have you ever had it in yourself, to keep one commandment of God for one second. You can't do it. We cannot do it. You and I, in our flesh, even as regenerate men and women, are utterly powerless apart from the Spirit. That's why Paul said in Romans 7, 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. All the desire in the world is utterly useless apart from the Spirit of God. We talk to people all the time, right, who they, they have all the desires. Oh, they, they really want to do right. They really want to get back in church. They really want to read their Bible more. They really, really want, really want, really want. They, they don't have a, an ounce of power to do any of it because they're dead in their sins. They cannot. That's what Paul's saying here. Verse 14 of that chapter, he says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. The flesh has no power. And the primary point of that whole section in Romans 7 is to show that the law by itself, when met with our flesh by itself, is completely impotent to produce anything good in us. The law is not life or life-giving. The law is not bad. It just doesn't give life. If you were to take your life or the life that's in your flesh and add it to the life that's found in the law, when you, you put them together, you would have zero life. There's no life there. That's why Paul refers to it as, as a, a dead letter. There's no life there. The law is not bad by itself, but it doesn't produce life. It's God who is life. It is the Spirit who is life. He's the one who gives life and sustains life. He alone is the source which animates the new heart, which then spurs on the affections and the will and all of the actions of a saint, as Jesus said in John 6.63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. No help. Now you need to hear that. When it comes to gospel obedience, we're going we're gonna to look at a lot more texts in the weeks to come. God has promised that you'll keep the Ten Commandments. We ought to expect of ourselves a keeping of God's law and a walking in righteousness. And God requires it over and over and over. But when it comes to our obedience, any spiritual product, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. None. So when Paul says walk by the Spirit, he says he means first that the Spirit of God has to be the life of your soul in all of its activities. You cannot do it by yourself. It has to be by the Spirit. Now what can we deduce from that? It must be by the Spirit. It cannot be of myself. What can we deduce from that? What's 
necessitated by the truth that in yourself there is no power. Jesus said, apart from me you can do nothing. What, what does that require? In me, no power. Flesh, no help at all. God, infinite power. In the Holy Spirit of God, infinite power. What, what does that demand? It, it demands that we look away from ourselves and to the Holy Spirit of God. Right Now, in the Bible and in theological study, there's a five-letter word that we use to summarize the idea of looking away from ourselves and to God. That word is faith. I don't have it in me. You don't have it in you. It is the Spirit who must do it. You have to look away from yourself and unto God. The just shall live by faith. He shall have life in his soul and all of the Godward actings of his soul only by faith, outside of self. Now, the Spirit does indwell us. This is where I struggle because I'm saying we don't have it in ourselves, but we do have the Spirit, right, indwelling in us, so it kind of is in ourselves. When I say it's not in ourselves, I mean apart from the working of God. We don't have it in us. And here, the faith demanded of the believer really begins with the belief that apart from Christ, you can do nothing. You'll never live the life of faith demanded by Christ. You'll never walk by the Spirit from the start or at any point until you realize that the power to do so does not reside in you. It resides in Christ. Where there is self-confidence, there is no faith. Where there is no faith, there's no walking by the Spirit. Why would you walk by the Spirit if you could do it by yourself? Where there's no faith, there's no praying. Why would you pray if you've got the power? In you? Why, would, why would you ask somebody else for the help? If you've got the power in yourself. Where there's no recognition of impotence, there's no dependence upon another power. If I think, if I think one outlet works, I'm not going to unplug the lamp and plug it in somewhere else. I think this one works. Well, the bulb is not coming on. I don't care. I think this one works. You're not going to look to a different source. Now, that's what prayer is. We've got a lot of books and teachings about prayer. Everybody wants to learn how to pray. Everybody wants to be a man or woman of prayer. We even pray, make us a praying people, and I'm, I'm not discouraging any of that. But the reason we don't pray is because we think we got it on our own. We're full of self-confidence. I got this. That's why we don't pray. When you get helpless, nobody has to teach you how to pray. We're so disconnected from what God has called us to do or deceived into thinking that we can accomplish it by confessing the right doctrines, or both, that we have no need for God. And so we don't pray. If your house is on fire, nobody has to come to you and say, hey, here's a, a really helpful book that helped me really think through you know, the, the concept of calling the fire department and you know, who's going to be there and what they might come and do. If, no, you just call them. Because you recognize, I can't fix the burning house. But there are people who have trucks and water, and it's their job to fix the burning house, right? This is, this is how prayer works. The only reason that we don't advance or increase in our life of prayer is because we're not convinced that we can't do it on our own. We don't believe we're powerless. We've got a confession of faith, right? We're reformed, right? We don't need God. We just confess the right things and move along. That's where our error is. We don't yet believe that we're powerless. But when you really believe that you're powerless, you begin to look outside of yourself to God. Now, there's a five-letter word in the Bible that summarizes the idea of looking outside of yourself and to God. It's called faith. To walk by the Spirit demands that we do not walk by our own power. It actually forces us to refuse. We have to refuse to walk in our own power. And we trust Him to be the power in us and with us. And I believe that that evidences itself most prominently in our prayer. When you are desperate, you pray. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? It means to live your life first inwardly and then coming out of you with the Holy Spirit as the source of life in your soul, utterly reliant upon Him in all things, at all points, at every point, every moment of every day. 
relying upon the Holy Spirit, refusing to rely on yourself and your flesh. The second way in which the Spirit becomes the means of our walking is as, the word I'm using is as the script, the, the instruction or instructor of our living. When the Spirit of God is scripting our walking, then we walk by the Spirit. We're keeping in step with Him. Where He goes, we go. Where He leads, we follow. Where He steps, we step. Where He stops, we stop. If you wanted to think, what does it look like to have the Holy Spirit as, as a script? Try to imagine the Holy Spirit was a man walking on the earth. However He would live in your shoes on a daily basis, that would be the script of how you ought to live. Now, how do we know what that looks like? Well, we do have the premier example set for us in Christ Himself. Fully man, walking in the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit. As He lived in this world, we also have more broadly the entirety of the Word of God. The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit, written under His inspiration, applied by His power. So we take up the Word of God and we drink deeply from its wells. We learn the ways of God. We learn the ways of the godly. We, we watch the pattern of Christ Himself. And that's how the Spirit takes His sword and He uses it in us. Now again, this requires faith. If you're convinced that you already know how to live, tomorrow's Monday. If you're convinced you already got Monday figured out, I got Monday. I've done Mondays before. I got this. Then why would you search the scriptures to, to be instructed on how to how to do Monday? You're not going to. You got it on, you got it, you're fine. You don't need the word of God. You don't need instruction. Lack of prayer and lack of study of the scriptures is evidence of self-confidence. That's the sin. Self-confidence. Pride. I've got it. I don't need to read. I don't need to pray. God, just hang out up there, and when I need you, I'll let you know. That's, that's our, our thinking. You don't realize your powerlessness and your ignorance apart from God the Holy Spirit, and therefore you don't study the Scriptures. But if you are convinced that you are ignorant about how to do Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, if you're, if you're convinced, I don't, I, I don't know what to do. If you're convinced then you're going to comb the Scriptures to see what the Spirit has said. Not to reaffirm your personal interpretations of texts or insert your own meanings into the texts. Well, I've read this a hundred times. I know what it means. No, stop. And read it again and let the Spirit tell you what He means in His Word. And you'll come. You'll learn, again, from the lives of the godly. You'll learn from the life of Christ. You'll learn from the law of God because it's through the Scriptures that the Spirit of God reveals the pattern of godly living. Here's the instructions. And we don't like to... Sometimes we, we over-spiritualize the concept of the Bible. We don't want to act like we actually have here instructions for living. This is how God tells us how to live. It is how God tells us who He is. We ought to live like Him. It is how God tells us what He's done to redeem us by sending His Son and we're being made after His image. But it's also how God tells us how to live. We learn how to live from the Scriptures and it's not moralistic to read of the life of Abraham and say, how could I be more like this man of faith? That's why it was written down for our instruction. We would know how to live. It's not moralism. How do we keep it from being moralistic? We'll go back to step number one. Spirit of God, I can't do it on my own. You have to work this in me. I see the pattern. I see a powerless individual. I need your help. This is the command. Walk by the Spirit. Look to the indwelling Spirit of God to be the source and script of your conduct. We are to rely on the Spirit of God as the source of power. And the Word of God is the script of conduct in all matters of life. He guides us and He empowers us. Paul says, if you have life by Him, then keep in step with Him. Walk with Him. The, the, the most foolish thing we can do is to have life by the Spirit, to live by the Spirit, and then say, but I'm going to go this way today. That, that, that doesn't make any sense at all. He's given you life and yet you're not going to keep in step. We are to walk by the Spirit or walk by means of the Spirit. That's the command. Now then, we need to ask, why 
Is there a need for this command? Why does Paul have to say this? Have we not already learned that God promised to take out the heart of stone, to give a heart of flesh, to give us His own spirit, to write the law on new hearts, to cause us to keep us? Have we not already seen all of that? If God has made these promises, why is there a need for Paul to come along and say, oh, oh yeah, you've got to walk by the Spirit if you want that to be manifested in your life? Well, the answer is again because the product of this work of God in us and coming out of us is not automatic. It's not mechanical. As a matter of fact, there's a great impediment to this work, even as regenerate men and women. A great impediment in what the Bible calls our flesh. This is why he has to command it, because we still got the flesh. In the very next verse, after our text, Paul says in 5.17, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you do, to, from doing the things you want to do. See that word for? Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For Here's the reason I got to command. Here's the reason we got to go into this. Because there's another uh, agent, you could say, within you. There's, there's the flesh in you that is against the work of the Spirit. And vice versa. The Spirit in you is warring against your flesh. And this is the war that we have to always keep in mind. Though regeneration has taken place, the Spirit does now abide in us, but we're not glorified yet. There still remains... What Scripture calls the flesh. Now to hear men try to define the flesh, if you've ever heard anybody attempt this, it's, it's pretty hard. I'm going to give you this. Maybe sometime we can come back to this. This is how I think I've heard others define this. The flesh. Our human nature, as it still remains subject to the curse under Adam. Our human nature, as it still remains subject to the curse under Adam. Paul could say after his conversion in Romans 7, 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. In verse 23, he says, I see in my members. Here's a little turn of phrase. I see in my members... Another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. My members is synonymous with the flesh. They're the same thing. The flesh, the parts of his human nature. It's not, it's not merely natural, the, the, uh, tangible, touchable, physical. There, there is a, an internal and spiritual side to this. But the parts of his human nature, as they still retain the effects of the curse under Adam. Remember that regeneration is a new creation. It's not a reworking of the old creation. And so when a person is born again, now there's a new creation within a man alongside of the flesh. And men have, you might would say there are two natures in us or there are two, two active principles at work in us. But there's a war. We know that for a fact. Something's happening inside of us where there's a warring against ourselves. We're commanded to walk by the Spirit because we still retain in our members the curse of sin, which from our flesh says, don't walk according to the Spirit. You've got this. You can do it. And the Spirit says, no, you can't. You need me. And the flesh says, no, I think we got this. And the Spirit says, no, you don't. You don't have this. You're powerless. And there's a war. And so Paul commands the Christians that they, we must, they must and we must rely utterly upon the indwelling Holy Spirit for all that He commands, for all of life. And He commands this because He knows that we, as, even as Christians, we still have that old native tendency towards self in our flesh. Paul is in essence commissioning us to war. And this commission to war only applies to us because of the promises we've already seen. Because of the promise of the new birth and the indwelling Spirit, there is now a battle within us to walk according to the desires of the flesh or 
according to the Spirit of God. That This command, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, that can't be given to a lost person. They don't have the option of walking by the Spirit. They will always gratify the desires of the flesh, even in doing things that they think are moral and godly. They're gratifying the desires of their flesh. I'm going to go to church so that people will think well of me. I'm going to do this thing or that thing so that people will think well of me. It's gratifying the flesh. This promise can't be given to a lost person because they cannot walk by the Spirit. A Christian, however, is one who's been born of the Spirit. And at the same time, he does retain the corruptions of the flesh, the old man. And so a Christian has to be commanded and reminded, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. And there's the promise. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So there's the command, walk by the Spirit. Now let's look at the promise. Paul promises that if we walk by the Spirit, something's going to happen. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So the substance of the promise is, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now notice that this, the substance of this promise is primarily negative. If you do this, you won't do that. If you walk by the Spirit of God as the source and script of your daily conduct, then you will in turn not gratify the desires of the flesh. You will not live as one subject to those corrupt appetites like a slave. You won't do that if you walk by the Spirit. Your flesh will not call the shots. The Holy Spirit will call the shots. And when the Holy Spirit calls the shots, your flesh doesn't call the shots. They, they can't both dictate your living. It's either one or the other. At all times, it's one or the other. So the promise as to its substance is negative. But what would be the positive side of this? If, negatively speaking, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, then positively, what will you be doing? How will you live? Well, he tells us, Quickly, at the beginning of verse 18, he uses the, the phrase, led by the Spirit. And then in verses 22 and 23, a very well-known text regarding the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, you will positively produce the fruit of the Spirit. Positively speaking, God promises that a Christian who walks according to the Spirit, as source and script, will produce the fruit of the of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit will characterize their conduct. There's sort of an antithesis set up, and we've, we've looked at this passage before. Verses 19 to 23, we have the works of the flesh. If you're gratifying the desires of the flesh, then the works of the flesh are what you're going to produce. Or, or If you're walking by the Spirit or led by the Spirit, then the fruit of the Spirit is what you're going to produce. Now, I, I, I also think there's probably... A lot to be said about the, 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 ver the difference in wording here. The, the works of the flesh over against the fruit of the Spirit. If you're going to work in your own power, you're going to be working in your flesh, and this is the kind of stuff that's going to be produced. Verses 19 to, to 21. But if you walk by the Spirit, and thus are led by the Spirit, then you will produce fruit. Now, what does that imply? Except the source of life is not you. It's just the fruit coming out of you. You see, there's a difference between working and the product of, of, of life and manifestation of fruit. I've never seen an apple tree sweating. They're not working real hard to produce the fruit because the life just comes in and that's what grows. So there's this this theme, if we take these, these pictures, walk, you will be led by, and you will produce. So this would be the positive implication of the promise. If we wanted to reword it, putting all this together, we could say, walk by the Spirit, and you will be led by the Spirit, and you will produce the fruit of the Spirit. Positively, the promise is that you will produce the fruit of the Spirit. Now here, I can preemptively expect an objection that goes like this. 
Aha. Now we've got you. See, all this time, Pastor, you've been using words like law and Ten Commandments and rules and statutes. And to be honest, we were all a little nervous because that just sounds so legalistic. Sounds so moralistic. But now, as we knew you would, Pastor, you came around. Now that you've come into the New Testament and you've encountered the God of the New Testament and the writings of the New Testament, you've, you've, you've tried to make a switch from law to fruit of the Spirit. Which... Everybody knows fruit of the Spirit, that's much more in line with the ministry of Christ, the new covenant, the law of liberty, and the law of love, and all those terms, right? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, right? We, we want the freedom to produce fruit of the Spirit, not that old legalism. So, so now we're with you. Just don't try to twist this into legalism. It's interesting that I don't know of any group that argues against the fruit of the Spirit. Well, we believe that's old covenant. No, everybody says, yeah, Christians produce the fruit of the Spirit. That's, we ought to be aiming at the production of the fruit of the Spirit. That's good. Spirit is good. Law, bad. Nobody debates that. Well, to that objection, I would answer. This section, verses 16 to 25, is merely an expansion and an elaboration of what Paul said in verses 13 to 15. He says, if you were called to freedom... Or For you were called to freedom, brothers. Going back to the beginning of the chapter, for freedom Christ has set us free. Everybody loves freedom, right? We've been set free. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Notice he contrasts giving opportunity to the flesh with love. So here, it's not yet flesh and spirit. It's flesh and love. Everybody likes to love, right? Want to love each other. Want to love everybody. So we, we get that. Now, that. now we're talking new covenant, right? Yeah, we can love one another. And, and, and he says, well, the whole law is summed up. He turns the law around to them, the second table of the law. You see, this whole law is summed up in love one another. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And the Christian says, after day one, you're going to have to give me more because I can't love my neighbor on my own. And so that's why he goes into verses 16 to 25. You're going to need the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the same thing he does in Romans 6, 7, and 8. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What law? The law of Christ? The, the, the law of liberty? The new covenant law? No, he's quoting from Leviticus 19. Verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. He's not quoting from Christ that we know of. Paul didn't have the gospel of Matthew in his back pocket. Christ also quoted from Leviticus 19 to summarize the second table of the Ten Commandments. And remember, Christ was living under the administration of the Old Covenant. Nobody has a problem with that, really, or they shouldn't. Paul does the exact same thing. Do not gratify the desires of the flesh in your treatment of one another, this is what Paul's saying, but rather gratify the requirements of the moral law of God in your treatment of one another, which is summarized in love, which you cannot do by yourself, so you're going to need the Holy Spirit. You're going to have to walk by the Spirit, not in your flesh. And so he goes then and proceeds how we are able to accomplish this by walking by the Spirit. I've said this before, and, and we may go into this in the weeks to come. Paul views the law versus the Spirit as a... a like a power source. Think of a battery pack. You're either going to use the law or you're going to use the Spirit. And the, the, one of the primary points of the giving of the law was to sort of give a, a dead battery. Here's the law. See, see how this works. You can't do it. Then he gives the Spirit a living, life-giving battery pack. Now you can. To not be under the law, but rather under grace... <laughs> is to say, I'm no longer given the law and a dead battery. I'm given the law and a full battery, a, a power. 
to perform, to obey. By walking by the Spirit, we have the power and the prescription of how to walk in love toward one another. This love is simply a fulfillment of the second table of the Ten Commandments. Walking in this love looks like the fruit of the Spirit of God. To love one another, as, as it's been said, is to treat one another lawfully. And when you do that, does it look like cold, robotic legalism? No, it looks like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what it looks like to live lawfully toward one another, to love one another. So Paul promises under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that if a Christian walks by the Holy Spirit as the power and for guidance in life, the same Holy Spirit promised in the New Covenant, then they will keep the Ten Commandments. Now, you, I, someone could argue, well, that's just the second table of the law. I would argue you can't keep the second table of the law without the first table of the law. You can't love your neighbor on the Sabbath day if you require them to work for you. You can't love your slaves if you don't let them have a day of rest, but you take a day of rest. To, to love my neighbor, second table, is to keep the, the first table. I can't love my neighbor, my, my wife. I can't love my wife, second table, if I hold her higher than God Himself. It's first commandment. She'll have no other gods before me. See, you can't keep the second table without the first table. They, they go together. So that's, that, that's really a, a silly argument. Paul promises that a Christian who walks by the Spirit will keep the Ten Commandments. Their lives will be ordered by that transcript of God's righteous character and will produce the fruit of the Spirit. Why? Because that transcript has been written, not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So a Christian, we have this promise. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. A Christian is one who, day by day, moment by moment, has this option. Lost people don't have this option. We have this option. Carry yourself in a way of submission to the guidance and power of the Holy Spirit. And if and when and as you do so, you will negatively stop living according to the desires of your flesh. Positively, you will live out all of the practical applications of God's law. Or, to put it succinctly, God promises that a Christian will keep the Ten Commandments. Now, a couple weeks ago, I pointed out this fact, the, the, the prominence of the law of God in both covenants, old and new. And it's clear that in God's dealings with humans, He desires a holy people. Under the old covenant and under the new, under the new covenant, God's desire is a holy people now, you could hear all of this and, and begin to think, and I want to make sure that this is clear, I don't want you to begin to think that the major promise of the new covenant is morality. God promises that, that He's going to make you good people, or even that He's going to make you holy people. The law plays such a prominent role in the new covenant that it sounds like all God's promising to do is make us obedient, moral people. No, that's a fruit of of the promise. The reality is that central to the promise of the new covenant, it's not morality, it's life from the dead. The law could not give life under the old covenant. The law cannot give life under the new covenant. The promise is not law or morality. The promise is life. And it's only the Spirit of God who gives life. That's, that's the great promise. I'm not going to set stones in front of you again and say, here it is, here's the law. I'm going to give my spirit. That's the promise. The fruits of righteousness are just that. They're just the fruits. They're the benefits. They're the things that we get to see and say, I'm a member of the new covenant. I have the spirit. The premier promise of the new covenant is the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1. Wait in Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Father. Wait until you receive... Power from on high. What was the promise? The outpoured Spirit. It was the Spirit. Wait here. Here's the promise. The Spirit. That is what makes it the new covenant. This is what makes it the covenant of grace. 
or as I would maybe call it, the covenant of the Spirit. It is the covenant which mediates the indwelling Holy Spirit, the grace of God. The fruit of that is and will be an upright and godly people. So don't think the new covenant is a promise that will be holy. There is that. The new covenant is the promise of the Holy Spirit and the power. The evidence of it is holiness. Now from from this passage, we can draw out three things. Number one, you have a duty. We find a duty given to us in this text. And your duty is walk by the Spirit. You're commanded, walk by the Spirit. If you belong to Christ, then the greatest disappointment that you meet with on a daily basis is your flesh. Remaining corruption. If you're a Christian, the thing that sometimes causes, maybe every time, all the time, causes the most grief in your life is sin. It's that there's remaining sin. You know that sin causes a break in your full, near, living communion with God. And therefore, sin is the enemy. That, that's that's our, our greatest challenge, is sin. It's not outside of us. Although things outside of us can, can trigger, stir up, uh, fan the flames of our sin, our, our corruptions. It's not the devil making us do things, but he does know those things which are, are our greatest weaknesses. And he can use those things against us. But our, our greatest challenge is really just the corruptions that are still in us. We want our sin gone. We don't like our sin. God's promised to take care of that problem. Right here. He says, I'll take care of that problem. You don't like living in sin. You don't like waking up in sin. You don't like going to work in sin. You don't like coming home in sin. You don't like this constant nagging sin in you. God says, I'll fix that. I'll fix that problem. I've got it. Walk by the Spirit. That's the answer. Walk by the Spirit. You have a duty to perform if you are to have this promised righteousness. If you want to claim the promise of God, then you must walk by the Spirit. And it's you that have to do this. You have to walk by the Spirit. God will not walk by the Spirit for you. You must do it. You must walk. Which means you have to recognize that you're powerless. You have to acknowledge that you're ignorant. You have to submit yourself to the Spirit of God. Now there are many aspects to this. But most simply this comes through prayerful study of the Scriptures where God will reveal to you your sins. Very often, I've said this before, most of us don't have to go to Exodus chapter 20 to know what our sins are. We don't have to, we don't have to get in depth in Leviticus to figure out what, what are my sins. We know what they are. We know. Just go to the Scriptures. God will, will make it manifest. Or just try to be godly for about five minutes. And you're going to find out what your sins are, what's keeping you. It's usually pride. I don't want to say this. I don't want to say that. I don't want to admit this. I don't want to admit that. I don't want to do that. Uh, laziness, uh, time wasting. Oh, I don't really want to do this. I'd rather do that. Those types of things. You just you know what they are. But if you're going to walk by the Spirit, you have to confess that is my sin. That's the thing that's keeping me from God. And then you're going to have to begin the work of putting that sin to death, which means calling upon the name of the Lord for help, admitting, I'm powerless here. I've tried for years. I've tried for months. I've tried for weeks. I'm powerless here. I can't do it anymore. And then submit to God's directing influences in righteousness. And again, most of us don't have to go to Exodus 20 to find out what God would have us to do. We know it. But the thing is, here's the reality in the very moment of, of temptation, and, and if, you, if you'll pay attention to your heart, you'll, you'll find this to be true. In the moment of temptation, when the Spirit of God says, that's your sin, you, you recognize that option's before you. And inside of you, you say, I, I kind of like it though. I kind of just want to do it anyway. 
And that's what makes it difficult. We, we just we, we want the sin a little bit more. If, it, if it's, if it's uh, time-wasting, for whatever reason, sitting around in, in laziness, and you, you feel the prick of the Holy Spirit, you're being lazy. Okay, I've got an option. I know I'm being lazy. What do I got to do? Well, let's get Exodus 20. No, get up and start acting. But I kind of like it here. I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable here. You just chose your sin over God. You just said, I would rather just gratify my flesh than have nearness to God. Now, that doesn't mean as you get up and all of a sudden, you know, lights come down from heaven and you're, you're flooded with the, the, the love of God in your heart. It, you might not recognize it until the next day when your communion with God is sweeter because you actually walked by the Spirit and, you, and, and God sees that. And he, he blesses us with His working there. Men, lust of the eyes. You know it. I don't have to go to Exodus 20 to say you shouldn't be looking at that. I know it. We know it. This could be women too, I guess. Typically a male problem. You, you know what the sin is. Okay? I just, I, I, if I, I recognize it, I, I just committed that sin. I ought not to look. Okay? Do I make a covenant with my eyes? Do, what do I, I know the things that I need to do. But deep down, I really like looking. I just want to look again. You've just chosen your sin over God. In those moments, if you will commit to walk by the Spirit, God, in this moment, I am powerless right now. You need to come. I need your Holy Spirit to empower me to mortify that. And just submit. And really, it is, it is the expulsive power of a new affection. I, I, I really... I do want God. God, I want you. Whether that's tomorrow or three weeks from now in my private prayer, I want you more than I want this little fleeting feeling. In the moment of temptation, we have to just admit and live it. Walk by the Spirit. That's your job. Walk. Submit. It's, it, men have said it so many times. We, we already know more than we're obeying. It's not like we need to know more. We, we know enough. The, the, the simplicity of the gospel in the Christian life is, is really as simple as Ten Commandments. We, we know the simplicity of it. It's, it's not that we don't know. It's that we would rather have our sin than God. While the Holy Spirit is not an influence or a feeling... He does influence us and work in us using our affections. And He does this specifically through His sword, the Word of God. Through the Word of God, He exposes your sin. If you're a Christian, whenever He puts His finger on that sin, you say, Ow! Because He just exposed it. And it's effectual. Through the Word of God, He shines a light on righteousness. This is what godliness looks like. Through the Word of God, God shows us His goodness and His faithfulness and His mighty power. As we study the Scriptures and we imbibe the Word of God, God regularly begins, even when we're not walking with an open Bible, I mean, I'm not saying we walk, go into Walmart with our, with our Bible so that we know how to live. Regular interaction with the Word of God, we begin to imbibe what godliness looks like. And we, we know what it is. And so then we, we learn on the spot to recognize, here's where I err, here's what is right, and here's what I win. If I will walk according to the Spirit, here's what I win. I win the God of goodness and faithfulness and of His mighty power. The Holy Spirit uses the revelation of God to turn us away from sinful ways and toward godliness, as well as increasing our faith in the willingness and ability of God to strengthen us for the work. So if you want your flesh weakened, if you want to grow in holiness, if it is really your desire to put to death the deeds of the flesh, then your duty is to walk by the Spirit. Secondly, we have a promise to encourage us in our duty. While it is we who have this duty to perform, and God will not do this duty for us, we certainly have His promise that He will work in us to this end. He doesn't do it for us, but He does work in us to give us the power to do it. He promises His Holy Spirit. He promises us promises us a new heart. 
He promises to cause us to walk in His ways and keep His commandments. This is His promise. Study the Bible and see if you can find a promise that God made and He left unkept. Study the world and see if you can find somebody else who's more worthy of your trust than God. You won't find them. A lot of times we we keep trusting in ourselves. I think I got this. When have you ever had this in the past? Never. You've never had it. You're going to trust in yourself again. God always performs. God always has it. Trust Him. Study the universe and see if you can find somebody more powerful to perform His promises. You won't find one. It's definitely not you. It's Him. You've got a promise. To trust God's promises and to put them to the test and prove Him is not a fool's errand. If you want God. If you want God, it's not a fool's errand because that's what you get. Any duty commanded is worth performing when the blessing to come is promised by the God of heaven. So you have a promise to encourage you in your duty. And thirdly, you have the Holy Spirit to give life to your actions. If you're a Christian, you've already received the promised Holy Spirit. So God's already fulfilled that promise. And while it is we who walk walk by the Spirit, it's God who gives the Spirit and the power to do so. A Christian who sets themselves to walk by the Spirit will never be disappointed. This is the ultimate win-win for every child of God. Take note of what it is that you most desire in life. To be free from sin. Okay? Take note. God has promised that very thing. If you'll walk by the Spirit. Not sinless perfection. You'll never get to that point. But if you'll walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. I know that. And take note that God has already given you the Spirit to energize you to this very duty. You have the Holy Spirit. The only way we lose is when we begin to think that some sin or some earthly treasure or attainment is better than God. That's where we lose. I think I'd like to hold on to that sin. You just lost. It's a win-win if you walk by the Spirit. This is where we have to die to ourselves daily. We have to wake up every day and lay ourselves down on the cross of Christ with Him. Die to ourselves. Paul says you've been crucified with Christ. This is, this is the essence of, of sanctification and Christianity lived out. Here's who you are. Here's what Christ has done. Here's who you are in Christ. Now, now live like that. And when you don't live like that, you're living contrary to, to who you actually are. Reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And make no provision for the flesh. Walk by the Spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's what, that's what we do. This, this great anguish that we have of our, over remaining sin, it's literally just our fault. That's what it is. It's our fault. Because He says it. If you walk by the Spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. So let's pray that God would do this work in us and empower us to it.